Welcome to Isidka. My name is Amina Isid, and join me as I take you on a journey to explore identity, culture, and belonging. Take a seat as I take you through time, space, and various perspectives of cultural identity. Stay tuned to see where the journey will take us today. For any park you go, most of the people who like own those products that you know uh, uh, that been imported are women. Mm-hmm. The women who are in the market and the the, the, the receiving end of that uh, 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 imported product who are selling and the retailers and wholesalers and everything are women. Yeah. Like those who uh, uh, facilitate, like for example, agriculture. Somali agriculture is based on women. Women mm. are the ones who sell and, and you know who buy things from the farmers. Mm-hmm. If you go into livestock, livestock is based on women, and those are the two uh, main section business sections, and you know that Somali economy is based on. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you want them to be excluded from the process? Yeah. And you still want to say, you know, um, they, they, they're our mothers and our wives and our sisters. No, I'm not, I'm nobody's, you know, wife or nobody's mother. Yeah. But still, I have a, my, you know, position in, <laughs> and I want it. All right, so welcome back to another episode of Isidka, the second season Imagining a Brighter Future, really is highlighting change agents in our society. And I'm so honored to introduce Segal Bihi, uh, who's a member of parliament currently, all around really strong force for bringing about positive social change in Mogadishu in Somalia to Somali society. So this episode is actually called Be Good Trouble, following in line with the late John Lewis of Georgia's kind of philosophy about doing what you kind of need to do to bringing about positive social change in your society. Sagabihi is definitely somebody who falls in line with that. And I'm really glad that she's kind of been very open about sharing her experiences. Um, and, you know, I just hope that listening to parts of her story will also kind of bring about others wanting to kind of bring about good trouble. Um, so I hope you enjoy this episode and stay tuned for the next episode. So yeah, let's talk about that. So who are you, Sagal Bihi? Currently, I'm a member of Somali Federal uh, Parliament, uh, House of the People. Um, I've been holding that position um, past four years and like some few months that are disputable. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I worked in um, mostly in public sector in my life. I'm not diaspora. I'm someone who um, was born and grew up in Somalia. I'm uh, a middle child. Uh, my family um so i've always had that sweet position where you challenged (laughs) yeah 100 (laughs) percent. exactly so and i was a unique kid like i've I've never even when i was a child in my family i had my own position and everybody had to pay attention and and see me i never allowed and like to be you know the child in the corner Um, Mm -hmm. in the family i was either uh, the person who makes everybody laugh and, and the person who makes everybody raise their, you know, eyebrows yeah. or the person who annoys everybody. That yeah. was me. 
all yeah. me. <laughs> how did your how did your parents respond to your elders in your family? Yes, this outspoken child, very much growing up in Somalia during. I mean, you were born before the war, but then you kind of li- you know were growing up through the war. Well, uh, the thing is, I am blessed when it comes with family. I have. Um, my father passed away five, six years ago, um, but he was my, my rock. He was my, you know, champion. He's, he was like person who was amazing even when I was very little. And he always had these stories that he tells people like what I did and what I said to him when I was like three years, four years old. Mm. My mom is someone who valued like education, who valued, you know, uh, self value, who valued that. She has to make sure that she produces a person that can uh, uh, that doesn't need to be completed and that doesn't need to be helped all the time. Mm. And she never made us feel that we're less than um, me and my sister. I have an older sister and younger brother. And um, but always we had family members, like cousins, young uncles who grew up with us, who always you know stayed with us. So uh, my mom always made sure that we're all equal. Mm-hmm. So I never had that problem that you're a girl, so you cannot do this, you can do that. And my mom always, um, although I, you know, uh, I was a teenage who is in Mogadishu, uh, that's, you know, warlord uh, uh, controlled era, but still I was an activist. I was going and coming and doing stuff. And my mom was on one side worried to death. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know if I will come back safe. But at the same time, she was telling me, like, go, 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 do what you got to do. And another thing that I really love about my mom is she's never been the kind of person that's influenced by the society. Mm-hmm. She would never care about what other ladies in the, you know, in the neighborhood would think. Or My father's side, I have extremely strong uh, female role models in my family, both sides. So that was also some thing that never gave me the you know uh, the opportunity to to bolt or to say like can I do this? because I this have been done before me mm. so like why not all these stories in the family that uh, my mom made sure that we knew because she knew that we were growing up in a tough time mm. we didn't grow up the same time that they grew up mm. we were growing up in in, a, in, the, in the middle of the civil war Mm-hmm. But she knew one day things would be better. And she did not want us to be unprepared. So she made sure that we were prepared. I told you the story of my, um, my aunt. People sometimes used to think she's the eldest in the family because mm-hmm. she, he empowered her. But also she was that person who always had purpose in her life. And she had cause that she stood for, even when she was very young. And she was very good in her education. And, uh, um, she became a, a you know school principal when she was like under 20. And, and she was that kind of person. And then um, she was the first diplomat in, in, in the female diplomat in Somalia and, and worked her way, you know, in the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, over 30 years. And not only that, so she was someone who everybody who met her, everybody who met her even five minutes had, like when she leaves, had that awe. She's mm. like, what a lady. Mm. Strength. I, I mean, like strength that I have never seen. And clarity. Mm. She's someone who's very clear. 
And she is someone who's so proud of who she is, mm-hmm. her origins, her story, her family, her country, her um, the society that she came from. So she was always someone who made sure that she multi-represented all her you know, different sections that she comes from. I never forgot, up until today. One day, um, she was, she came from uh, uh, somewhere and I was staying with her. Actually, it was first time for her over 20 years that she came back to the country and um, she was invited to a national reconciliation conference in 2007 that was happening in in, in Mogadishu. So, um, and I, just graduated university and and she asked me to stay with her so all day I'm at home doing nothing there's no job there's no no much so I'm you know at the hotel room just hanging out so I was brought and then um like I put it on the side of the table um not in a very secure place and then I, I had and the laptop was dead like big heavy one <laughs> yeah. so I knocked it off and so it, it was pasta so the bus was everywhere the plate you know broke and everything and well, I called the, um, the the reception and I told them to send someone to clean so my, my aunt comes while somebody's cleaning and kind of like you know collecting all the you know broken glasses and stuff and she goes like what happened and I was like oh yeah um and this had broke mm-hmm. she didn't say anything she went inside you know put her bag in and clothing and waited until the person who was cleaning left and then she comes back and then she sits the edge of the bed right in front of me and she goes like and she makes sure that she has an eye contact with me and she mm-hmm. goes like Edo, listen things don't just happen and if you're a young lady you don't learn responsibility to take responsibility for little things that nobody will take you know issues with plate of uh, spaghetti it's nothing and if you're trying to run away from that little thing and pretend that it just happened then you that will cause you to always be irresponsible person who never faces the consequences of their actions. So she said, you say, I, you know, uh, uh, I dropped my lunch and, the, you know, broke the, the plate. She goes like, that is the, because she said, warnings. When you're saying something, you're not only telling the person in front of you, you're telling it to yourself too. Mm-hmm. Even if you're lying, she said, you tell a lie three times you will believe it yourself because what you say it's not the only per, you know the, the person in front of you is not the only one who's hearing your brain is also hearing that yeah she said so you tell yourself to take responsibility up until today i swear to god i never forgot that it stayed with me and so Sometimes what happens is we miss the, the, the real things that can change our life into mm. a better way because we're not looking for it. To kind of take that a bit further. So when it comes to your own activism and the work that you did, what did that look like for you? 
Well, um, actually, to be honest, I when I started first, it was like I always had this very opinionated child who, even when I was very young and I was still at home, I always had a question about my basic things. Like, mm-hmm. you gotta eat this. And I feel like, why? There's nothing else to eat in the house. And they go like, no, this is what's cooked today. <laughs> and like, I always had these questions and, and, and um, I, I wasn't like someone who just takes what she's given. My father was in the military, which means when we moved a lot, we got deployed all over the country. So we, like growing up, we moved you know, around a lot. So I kind of also had this belonging to different places. Then we came to Mogadishu in, in, um, in 98, late 98. And then what happened is I started uh, middle school. And like all of a sudden I looked around and I said, like, where is the, uh, what does this school has as activity? And they're like, there is a magazine, monthly magazine. And I was mm. like, okay, sweet. I want to be part of that. Mm. Um, what do we have? We have a student body. That sounds a good thing to do. And then we started like having, and it was very tricky time. There was no, um, the, the, the actor uh, shit was just starting, mm. but the city was controlled by uh, uh, warlords, and, and you know there was no job. There was basically there was no jobs. Nobody was working, mm. and we were like always had a problem with what's going on. Like, what can we do about it? Mm. Let's do something about. It. Let's write something about it. Let's uh, um, if there is certain things, then let's. Uh, uh, organize rallies and be part of it and then uh, let's organize you know use uh, maybe education exchange knowledge exchange in in, in uh, summer when the school is off and, and we do all these activities and I, I would be part of it because I, I know I'm so so passionate mm. I will stay like I'll go to school and then I will take some like uh, changing clothings with mm. me because we wear uniform in the school and then after mm. school I change into my and I come back home like after Maghrib because after Maghrib is the lockdown. After that is like things yeah. are not safe. So I'll come back after Maghrib and I left 7 a.m. <laughs> at home <laughs> and I'm still like 16, 17. Mm. So, um, and then it, things started to progress and, and, and like the, the government came and then like activities became more mature the older I got the more when I came to you know in university I became and um, had the high school that I graduated from we had a, a graduators club mm-hmm. students graduates like everybody who graduates joins that club so we had some sort of like activities and like okay what can we do in Mugbisha at the time people were so sick and tired of malicious warlords so they started having um, something uh, uh, that's like, it's like a neighborhood watch mm. thing. So uh, we go like, okay, what can we, what can we do? Those guys, most of them are people who are not that much educated, who don't have, and all day they're sitting somewhere, just, mm. you know, uh, keeping eye on everything. So, okay, let's teach them something. Mm. Let's is a program. Those who can read and write, we teach them maybe basic computer uh, how to use the computer and stuff. Those who don't read and write, we teach them how to read and write. Mm-hmm. And we organize ourselves and we do things like that. Uh, so university, like, let's organize a big, uh, uh, maybe somebody like, uh, 
it was very at the time diaspora like they were not that fun of coming back so yeah. like every few years someone that's known like one time came mm-hmm. so we would organize a big like hall where all the students and like all the youth in the city can come and listen to him so it was always like how can we change the mindset of the people because it seemed at the time that people bought this whole idea of chaos it was like mm. okay we got used to it so like we don't and and it was it was killing us because we could see this is our life we growing up and we becoming older and older and 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 you can see like our generation is like gone with this you know what's going on but what about the generation after us mm. why don't we do something about it so it, it, like things started progressing like always every group that says like we're going to do something i'm there yeah let's do that <laughs> plus like i always consider myself someone who's very privileged when it mm. comes to uh comparing to you know uh ladies like me who grew up in the environment that i grew up in situations that i grew up i was blessed with the um the family and the support i had at home to do yeah. whatever i wanted <laughs> Just a huge privilege, regardless of where you are in the world, but even more <laughs> back home, you know, uh, in our in our society. So I want to ask you, though, about when you all were teaching the young men who are the neighborhood watchmen, which is also very similar to like what the Black Panther Party started doing in the States when the government basically was straight up killing them and not offering them any services. They started working within their own communities and had neighborhood police watches or neighborhood watches rather. So how did they respond to, the, you know, being educated by all these young people? Well, it was a collective effort. It was mm-hmm. like the neighborhood will provide maybe the space, somebody will provide the electricity of the lights because electricity was very scarce at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so if somebody gives you a line of, uh, uh, you know, one lamp and, and socket, that was like, yay, it was mm-hmm. good. Everybody was kind of contributing and we were volunteering to pay like our own uh, buses and stuff. And when you get there, they are so eager. And they so like, you can see that this person wants to change his life. He doesn't want to carry a gun anymore. Mm. So he want, he's looking for his ticket way mm. out. Mm. He's like, he's, he will tell you like, if I, you know, learn this, I will be like tomorrow. And, and, and people were so eager. Anything that gives them a glimpse of hope that tells them your life will be different tomorrow. So, um, and also it gave us that, uh, I mean, like these guys are former militia guys who now are hoping and willing to change their life, which means if they change their life, will be less guns and less militia in the street. So in mm. the process, our life will change, we will become safer, we will have more, uh, you know, space to do, to live the life we wanted to live in the society to become, you know, uh, better and, and more prosperous. Yeah. So good. Actually, it was, everybody was like so energetic and emotional when it comes. And we had like every, like there was a lot of neighborhoods and certain neighborhoods actually were scary. Um, that when the neighborhood uh, um, like watch came, they, it was like one of the real tangible results that the, the community started seeing was like, okay, things are changing. If so and so, if that neighborhood became safe where people can go and come back without getting harmed, then this you know neighborhood 
thing works and the, the every neighborhood started collecting among themselves like small money mm -hmm. so that you pay at least the basic you know uh expense of this person who's dedicating his entire day to make sure that everybody's safe in the neighborhood so it was a system that was working because there was no government and people mm -hmm. said like we we're fed up with uh being in the, under the mercy of some thugs mm -hmm. yeah to basically when the state started gaining some power like, and I use the word power very loosely, but some credibility or power in that context. What were you doing at the time in the city? And what did your activism look like? You know, at past the neighborhood watch, then what was the next step? And then, you know, kind of take us through that timeline. Yeah, um, actually, at the time, there was um, the, the second transitional government, uh, which is the one was built in, in Bagati. Mm -hmm. But because of the warlords did not allow them to come to Mogadishu, they had to, you know, in Johar and Baidabo and stuff like that. My father was uh, in that government. He was a member of parliament and he became a minister and then he became a parliament, member of parliament again. But I was in Mogadishu studying in uh, uh, university. So um, there was a, like, namely a government in the country, but they had no control in, like, anywhere, mm -hmm. let alone in Mogadishu. And then uh, the war between the Islamic uh, Union, like, courts, and, courts and, and, and uh, the warlords happened. And the, the, the Islamic courts uh, took over the city. Um, and that was another transition where people didn't know what to like. Okay, life became relatively safe. You're not afraid that uh, um, somebody will, uh, will like just take your uh, maybe ring or, or earrings out of your earrings, or take your phone, or take your like the little money that you went with the grocery shop. But again, there was another challenge that most of the people didn't get at the time because they were fascinated and wowed with the relative security. It was like people could not talk. Mm. People could not have an opinion. And that's the worst. Uh, we lived in that situation a few months and then again, a war started between the government and the Ethiopian, packed by the Ethiopian uh, troops. And, and I was like, again, chaos started going crazy. In 2007, I finished my uh, um, university, and I and there was like basically there was nothing. Um, the government was so weak; basically, they could not pay any uh, salaries, mm -hmm. and there was not a lot of. Uh, actually, it was. It wasn't even. Uh, you know, now you've been in in Mogadishu, like you've seen. Now people who have job and work with the government, they're proud. Yeah, I work. At the time, it was like people didn't like even saying I work for the government mm. because it was like there was this stigma of you work for the gov for government that works for Ethiopia or something. Mm. Mm. So, um, and then I decided, like, first I was like, okay, I'm gonna find a job and work sometime and then go to do my master's. But again, there was no job. And I had the opportunity to go and um, do my master's. And uh, that was another elimination process of where should I go? Like what's going to happen? But finally, um, I went to Pakistan mm. to do my master's. And I came back in 2010. 2010, when I came back, there um, the, almost half of the city, if not two thirds, was under the control of Al-Shabaab. Mm -hmm. It was a very small area. Uh, near Madatoyo, that 
that uh, the entire government and everybody that was not okay with living under the show of control was living. It was like, it was so conscious, like everybody was on top of each other. I remember our house, we had like each room, four, five, six grown men who are either MPs or ministers were sleeping together, like mm. having mattresses on the floor because mm. nowhere else people could go. There was no jobs, there was nothing, but my family were there. Um, so I came back um, and there was no job on anything. And then I, like a few months later, thankfully, um, Al-Shabaab was driven out of the city. And I went to my university, the university I graduated, and they said, we are having shortage of teachers. Mm. Because most of the uh, teachers and professors fled the city. Mm. So now, basically, we're trying to hang in there and to provide something to the students and, and make sure this, the wheel, you know, uh, uh, goes on. But can you please lecture? And I was like, yeah, I can. So they gave me three days a week. Uh, um, each day to three hours to, to teach. And I did that for a semester. What were you teaching about? I, my master's was MBA. So I was mostly teaching, like actually one of the subjects, uh, one of the subjects that I taught was um, management of multinational corporations. Mm. So it was like, because I was teaching uh, um, one of the, like two of the classes were junior, mm. like uh, business class students but um like everybody was trying their best to make sure that this is students at least learn something at the end of the day mm -hmm. um then um there was another problem the current president was a prime minister at the time and then he didn't get along with like that some deal was made that the end was he has to go and then the government and the president at the time gets one year extension and that year becomes uh, there was a roadmap that has to, had to be followed and, and a new government comes. So what happened is now that the city is a little bit more safe, Shabab are not, you know, uh, in the city, uh, people started having this hope of, mm. of, okay, there is a political movement because the city was dead before that. Like people didn't even have the anticipation of anything. They didn't know how tomorrow, like how the next hour will look like. Mm -hmm. like die or, or, or leave or, or they had like nothing going on but you know everything started like getting energized people coming back a lot of diaspora came what also happened is the famine happened yes so that famine also brought a lot of international uh, attention and then as usual one of my um mid like since mid-school classmate called me one day and he goes like hey uh there's this guy and other group of people who are trying to do something different they're trying to start a political uh, a movement that has the potentiality to you know motivate people and, and, and to tell people what they should expect mm -hmm. okay i'm like i'm in count me in and i went there and i met the guy and he was you know very uh convincing very like and i was like okay I'm going to be part of this. Mm. And I became part of that movement that later on, um, after the year ended, the year of like preparation for elections ended and, and we were like, we've done a lot of good stuff and we became, you know, uh, um, one of the opposition political movements that are um, known uh, um, that like for alternative, uh, you know, uh, opinions when it comes 
how the government was was you know handling things and um like we we said political party and then we had all the you know different uh, um, organs like political party has and our um the president of the party decided to run for a president and then i threw myself in the campaign on the other side also while i was working on that movement i started working with the ministry of uh defense as a um, communication and policy you know uh, uh, advisor so i was like i had this day job doing like working voluntarily with the ministry but also like doing this uh, activism things organizing meetings you know workshops and uh um and media like uh, uh, uh like feeding the media what needs to like kind of contributing a lot of activities that uh, is happening in the country and um when the election started the candidate that i was packing and working with won and became the president mm. and that was another i was like okay and i was at the time like i was so i was younger and very idealistic and yeah i'm still like sometimes people think i'm very idealistic but i'm i love it and that's me i mm. if that's naivety well i own it <laughs> mm -hmm. but i'm the kind of person who thinks like we have to do things to make things better mm -hmm. so we should not compromise we should not just the minute it gets hard we don't throw our values on the ground and say like it's the hard way like we stick with it and and even when things don't look practical and when we're dealing with uh, uh, um tradition and and things that are very you know old that always has this way of um not valuing justice and, and not valuing and it's like you don't have to follow you have to be the voice of reason you have to be the voice that pushes back so um i didn't get along with the team i was working with but i still had the good thing is at the time there was a lot of things going on so everywhere you look there's something that you could do there's something that you could you know you could have uh, contributed so then i started working in like number of different uh, um public institutions governmental and non-governmental so yeah that was <laughs> my like from 2007 to like let's say 2014 it seemed like before the way you were talking about it um, that Mogadishu was very insular in some ways, you know, people, it wasn't due to the safety and security um, concerns, rightfully so, not too many people were there. But then as time started, like the, after the famine and then 2015, 2016, like there was a lot more international attention as well, as well as diaspora returnees kind of being involved. And maybe that landscape even changed. So would you like to kind of speak to, how that how that influx of foreign actors looked from the other side as somebody who was always kind of living in this and working in this context yeah um the thing is uh, somalia as you know before um i mean like before the civil war we've lived in 21st 21 years mm -hmm. of, of under uh, um, you know military government that uh, not only it was military government, but also it was communist. So there was all these things that, like, you cannot just 
get your passport there has to be some like there was yeah. like people lived under all they, they like everybody was proud and everybody was this and people were contributing and people lived in peaceful and, and life was bright but also there was like this closeness that the Somalis didn't have exposure to the, the rest of the world and, um, and people were very conservative when it comes in, into you know in, in that side and then the civil war happened and everything collapsed and the whole world said like oh that's a lost you know cost so mm. just leave them to like their misery and Somalis sunk into another isolation mm. what happened 2011 is like something get triggered um because of the famine like everything has a a, a, a glimpse of, of you know positivity but the famine uh, the tragedy uh, of it also brought the international attention and what happened is like one of the uh, very uh, uh, like I think changing things that happened was, for example, the Turkish prime minister at the time, uh, now the president, decided to come to Somalia. At the time, we didn't even have embassies of, of foreign like we just had maybe Djibouti and Ethiopia, like just neighboring countries who, you know, we didn't have a lot of foreign embassies. We have we had nothing. And Somalis felt like we're not part of the world. So people were not looking outside. Basically, there was no connection outside. Mm-hmm. And then what happened is like the 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 world eyes turned into Somalia. And the Somali diaspora, especially the young generation mm-hmm. who were like very eager and looking for their own identity, said that is what that you know what's happening is in my country. And if the foreigners and you know the international people are going there, so they came. Like they came for whatever reason. Like some of them came to help and then came with the aid, uh, 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 you know, efforts. Some of them came just to be there. So all of a sudden, Somalis in the local saw that, oh, we're interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're not like all that, you know, a good for nothing bunch of people because like, okay, we're part of the world. And, and, and things started progress and, and governance became something that people are interested in for the first time and something that people want to have a say and people want to contribute like how their government should uh, work and should function. So it kind of woke in uh, uh, this part of, of, of you know, um, of us that like a lot, like very long time was non-active. Mm-hmm. So that changed. And the diaspora, what happened is they didn't only come, what happened is they also brought um, like uh, this mentality of, like we gotta try everything and the locals said like okay let's do this so we can do this so people started like encouraging each other clashing sometimes each other (laughs) and like pointing fingers but most of the time it was positive and also what happened is the money a lot of money came from the diaspora investments came people started you know opening restaurants i remember the first modern restaurant that was open in mogisho was um, still, it's open. Uh, now it's open. Like in, there's a bunch of branches. Village, the village. Mm. Yes, yep. I ate there in Halane. Exactly. Ahmed was the first person who came, and you know what he did when he started the first restaurant in Mudisho. Al Shabab were still controlling the city. 
Mm. And he opened his first restaurant less than 100 yards away from their defense line. Mm. But still, that place used to be open until 2 a.m. Mm. There is no other restaurant. So you go there. Like, so like basically, you're there for four or five times a day. <laughs> you need a coffee, you go there. You get your coffee. And then like lunch, you have a friend that you want to take out, someone who came to the country and you want to, you know, brag and say, like, finally, now we have, you know, and then you take them there. And then, like, somebody will say, let's go and have asari. And then you go there. And then, like... Mm it's late and we need to eat and they so then we go there and it became like village became second home for everybody in the city mm. and then people saw like and Ahmed was like the international magazines and international tvs and yeah. everybody talked about like the londoner uh, uh chef who came to Mogadishu and you know risked his life and everything and opened and a lot of people said hmm so the country is investable yeah <laughs> yeah start coming back and opening all these type of rest like businesses that Somalis were not even interested before mm-hmm. I remember there was a time that like I mean there is if people lose hope life becomes colorless mm-hmm. people lose desire for anything they just want to keep the bare minimum of life Mm-hmm. So there was a time that you couldn't find if you wanted, for example, a furniture in the city because nobody wanted to import. Like nobody is buying. People are fleeing every day from their homes. The shelling is like, like why would I buy? Like, mm-hmm. what am I going to do with new furniture? So if you had the need to, you know, furnish your house and you say like, I want furniture, it was like, sorry, mm-hmm. <laughs> there is no furniture. So people started like, I'm going to remodel my house. I want to build a new house. I want to, you know, change all, you know, uh, concrete walls of my house. Business became demand started. Mm. Also, people started, like, jobs, you know, uh, uh, started to become more available than before because there was no job. When I came back, there was zero jobs. Mm-hmm. And even this, there was a very little NGOs and local NGOs worked in the country and they were all based in Hargeisa and Garoe. Mm-hmm. It basically, that's where the jobs, like the, the very little jobs that were run were either in Nairobi, in Hargeisa or in, in Garoe. And they were trying to help a little bit, like uh, uh, there was the area we used to be called South and Central Somalia, was mm-hmm. hot potato. So nobody was getting near there. So people were not getting jobs. And when people don't get jobs, means that the, 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 the will of the economy stops. And, and that means like people have nothing to live for or, or to look for. Like the, the purchasing power becomes zero. Mm. So yeah, uh, everything changed one day. And people started like having, uh, you know, uh, uh, you will see a group of young people who will tell you like oh we went to Yuzira beach last night and we had a bonfire and something we're like guys <laughs> that is so what limitations that all these chains that were blocking you know uh, uh especially young people from what they can become and what they how they should live were lifted i think what's after that is in between, when did you become an MP? Actually, I'm this seat that I'm serving, my father served for me. There was an, uh, another person between us. I wasn't planning to run. 
but I with like another friends, we started working on the like the conversation of in 20. Okay, let me go a little bit, you know, back in 2011, there were um, Prince there were principal one and two. And Somalis made uh, uh, the, there was no federal member states at the time, um, but there were Buntland, there was like Gelbuduk, uh, who was like small, uh, uh, not the, the four meetings right now, and the federal government, and they made principles. And women went there and you know campaigned for the thirty percent quota, and the thirty percent quota became like gentleman agreement. It's not something that's you know legally binding, but it was like okay, let's make sure that they have this quota. What happened is 2012 when the election happened and you know the, when the smoke cleared, there is 12% of the parliament, um, House of the People, because there, at the time there was no Senate. Then 2015, the, the, you know, the talk started like, oh, this time they're not even gonna get the 12% they got in 2012. This mm. time, uh, no. And then the worry started. It was like, oh my God, like what's gonna stop them? And then all these conversations started from places. So I have a friend of mine who, um, like, she's a wonderful person. And she is a force if she pushes something. Um, so me and her, we just started having conversations. We expanded the conversation. We included, like, another uh, young professional uh, uh, um, ladies in, in, in Mogadishu and, like, the conversation, like one thing led to another. At the time, my friend was working with the Ministry of uh, Women and Human Rights. I was working, but I was working human, like another project, a consultancy capacity, but she was an advisor. So she had a direct contact with the minister. She was uh, uh, firsthand working with the minister. So she came up with this plan that, okay, we are uh, kind of trying to like reorganize this and make and create some sort of uh, force that represents what we want to channel. So there used to be these forums that used to happen mostly in Mogadishu, but sometimes they used to happen better one. They happen other places, but the forums were the federal member states and, 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 uh, and federal government leaders used to come together every um, month or every two months. And then they used to make uh, decision about the election modality and the technicality and how it functions and blah blah. So we said that's where we need to gate crash. So the, uh, the minister at the time she went to the president and she said, "I want you to write a you know decreta and, and decree and appoint a group of people that we call goodwill ambassadors for women quota, and those will be the conduit." that connects this official body and uh, 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 the civil society that's fighting, that's been fighting on the other side, but they cannot break through. And there are so many, so we need like a group of people who kind of, and, and the international community is kind of trying to support the whole system, the whole election system, they supporting whatever it takes. So we want a group of people who can connect all these efforts and can communicate with, uh, uh, so I was like included in that group of people. So we started working on uh, how we realize the quota 
And when we sat with the leaders, they told us, they said, okay, guys, you're just telling us to, you know, uh, include 30% of, of, of the election uh, to make, you know, make sure like women get their quota. But we are the ones who have to deal with the elders and traditional elders. And, and, and so help with, like, you know, help us, work with us, facilitate in a way that we can break down this and make sellable. Like, okay, you guys have to do the heavy, like it's part of your work. Then we started like um, making strategizing, making formulations and writing things and clarifying and say, you know, uh, in a plan that tells who needs to do what, like everybody have to do their um, checks and balances. So that in that conversation, we took a retreat to Djibouti for uh, I think three or four days to make the plan and everything. And the conversation of how do we encourage the right women into this? Because this looks, it's promising. But if it works and we haven't, you know, made that other side that's very crucial for this effort also ready or supported, then it will be, you know, a lost cost. So how do we, you know, another, we said, everybody got to talk to someone they know, some women they know that they believe deserves to. On the other side, I'm having all these people from my sub-sub clan who, you know, prominent people who are asking me, some, somehow people believe that I will run, but I'm not running. Actually, these meetings that I'm having with the ladies, I'm telling them I am not running. Mm -hmm. So that is the information that everybody knows. And they go like, this guy is like, why are you not running? And I feel like, I don't feel running. I'm not ready. Mm -hmm. And they go like, no, you should run. You got to run. We'll support you. We'll do this. And I know the Somalis, yeah, we say Somalis, are, they have the same culture and same thing, but sometimes they're different. They are not have slightly different practices. So the, where I come from, women, still there is a lot of craziness, but it's one of the mildest when it comes to how women are viewed in, in terms of leadership and stuff. So... And then when we started having conversation with these ladies and some of them told us these stories of what they got to face if they try to run. Some of them said, like, we will be killed. Mm. We will face this and this. Um, like, I will not. And then I came back home and I was like, what a hypocrite am I? Mm. People are begging me to run and decide. And I'm saying like, I don't want, I'm not ready. I don't want to do it. And all day I'm pushing these women who their life is on the line to mm -hmm. run. Like, what is wrong with me? And then I started having with my like, closest friends and they go like, please, if you have the chance, you gotta run. And I was like, okay. Mm -hmm. I will, you know, I consulted with like my uh, close family and stuff. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to throw my hat in, in the ring. And one thing led to another, um, it was one of the toughest uh, um, election, seat elections in Somalia, but at the time, especially mm -hmm. for uh, women seats, but I won. And the whole thing came through a process of chasing something. <laughs> I like, came to this. I knew one day I would be 
you know, uh, running for a seat. And I knew, like, I wasn't someone who was not like completely ignorant from the whole process. And no, I knew, but at the time I, I believed like, uh, I should work on encouraging other people and making sure that everybody else is, is you know, has the, the right space and the right, I, I should not be running, but I figured out, no, you have to take this step yourself. Hmm. Like everybody who has a glimpse of chance is to jump mm-hmm. and let's see who ends up, you know, who lands in, in the promised space that we mm-hmm. were all looking for. So that's how um, my MP ship happened. And then, um, so in some ways that if somebody does something, uh, you know, like the whole Gandhi, like be the change you want to see in the world. So then if somebody sees you doing something that might inspire people around you, how did other people respond to you? Like maybe even people you didn't know personally? There is no, there's no lack of will from the woman's side to take up their space. But there is a pushback, very strong pushback that is backed up with long tradition religious uh, 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 biasness that is not the real religion, but some people are always trying to create this uh, uh, notion of the Islam is the, uh, the what tells women not to do anything. Um, but I remember when I decided to run, one of the first things that I did was to go to the district that I was supposed to be elected from for the first time. Mm. And that's another ugliness of clan. Clan, like if it was up to me, I had other places that I have way more connection in my heart. Mm. Um, places that I grew up, places that I I know and and and, and I understand and, and I can talk to people in their language. But what helped me is my family and and also I was always, even when I was young. I was someone who was very cultured. So I was connected somehow, although it was the first time that I got there. So when I went there and I started like, you know, holding these town hall meetings and seeing different uh, sections of society, when I saw the, the uh, I, even women, I divided them. I saw the old women and I saw the young uh, girls. And all of them said, we never thought that we had a chance. So now seeing you running and coming to this place and sitting with older uh, uh, traditional elders and trying to reason with them and trying to change their mind to support you or not, even if they don't, if they don't support you personally and they're supporting another candidate, but to respect you, to come to you when you say I'm you know, holding town hall meeting and I, I don't like, I'm someone who doesn't look like my age. Mm. I look way younger. Not only that there is a gender prejudice, but also there is an age prejudice in Somalia. So they say like, so everybody thinks like I'm in my twenties or something. Mm. So they're like, be able to, you know, these elders, respected elders to, you know, come to your town hall meeting when you say, I'm, you know, holding town hall meeting in that place. And I want to talk to the city and they, give you the time that is something yeah and alhamdulillah i was extremely supported and i'm not talking about not only my community and, and, and uh, people that i was uh, representing in the parliament but also 
all these people that I either personally known in my entire life, people I grew up with, um, people I worked with, people I've known in, in Muldisha, like it was, I, I, I was overwhelmed, extremely overwhelmed when the voting ended and I uh, ended up to be the, and I was like, I didn't, because I was go, 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 go from the early. I was like, you know, what's the, you know, plan for tomorrow? I wasn't, I didn't look up. I didn't look around, but when the vote came, I like my phone blew. I had to turn it off. Mm. It was like, and I was like, all these people were following. And I was like, they were live. Even other cities, other capital, uh, 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 federal member state capitals, Mm. people that day, they didn't know the elections that were happening in that city. Mm. They were like, what's happening in Kismayo? Because my seat was in Kismayo. Mm. <laughs> they go like, what's happening in Kismayo? Let's follow. The competition was very bit like tense. But who was the who was your opponent? Were they an older person that's super from- poor lady? Okay. Actually, one of the miracles that I was not expecting that happened was the seat to be allocated. I wasn't expecting. Mm. I mean, like there was no reason the seat to be allocated. Mm. Like the calculations we made, this seat was not supposed to be. But um, the other seat that we thought would be allocated, there was no ladies running for it. So the state decided, okay, there is a four ladies uh, running for this seat, so let's uh, allocate. So the seat became allocated. And, and first everybody said, oh, it, it became easy. No, it went nuts. Because so you were running against three other women for that one seat. And, wow. and like some of them were like worthy opponents mm. in, in, in that running and they put up a fight. Mm. And, and also I was kind of enjoying that because mm. I felt like I've earned it. Yeah. People believed me, gave, and it took time. I was like, it was the last, second last seat that was elected in, in the process. And the process was like months and months. Mm. So it was worthy. You know, you've been, you've had this seat for a couple of years now. And what, what are some, what are some of the biggest um, wins since you've been um, a member of parliament personally and professionally? And also what is one of the biggest challenges that you were not prepared for? And then after that, any advice for anybody who's coming after you that might be considering running for parliament? Um, first, it was, um, I think, like any person who's, you know, um, walks into, people think that, oh, I've been activist, I've been, you know, working in the political arena, I've been this and this and this. So if I become an MB, it's just like, now I have the, you know, uh, a vote and, you know, everything will be, no, things are way different. Um, you looked differently. Um, you are working in a house, for example, only in our house, there is 275 different MBs, which means you're not special. (laughs) (laughs) You are not special and they are equal. Everybody has a vote. So you have to really be very careful and you have to be very strategic with the glimpse of shot you have to do something. On the other side, since this person was not elected in to, in, from like a popular vote, 
um, were, you know, uh, um, like everybody had access to, uh, you know, free and fair election. So there is less accountability that this person is expecting. And on top of that, you're representing a poor society that doesn't know a lot about how governance works and what your job is. Mm. So things they ask you and the things they expect from you are sometimes like beyond your, like sometimes your personal limits and capacity, but sometimes even immoral and unethical things that they ask you and Mm. they expect you to do it because everybody else does it. That's how envies work. And remember, like the, the whole reason that you came to this place was like, I'm not going to do like everybody else. I'm going to do, I would be the change. Yeah. But everybody wants you to do what Asaga is doing. Mm-hmm. So um, that's another thing. Another thing that was really very challenging was this ideology of, Oh, um, we have a 24% uh, female um, representation. So now we're, we're going to move something. No, <laughs> there is no much because it's not, uh, every person who's wearing gumbo mm. doesn't represent women and doesn't, lose sweat on a woman issue no some of them their mentality of what women is is much worse than the craziest men mm-hmm. like some of them you feel like oh wow you are a danger yeah <laughs> what we're working for and who we're working for is the young generation generation growing up that's who we want to equip with uh um education and you know freedom and space so that they can you know uh uh fill their their space in the society so that was not the case so it became another challenge um the third challenge that was really sometimes um yeah it was there is all these things that are happening outside the parliament and they become the story. So, mm-hmm. and the pilot, like people, sometimes MBs are not um, excited, are not like about the real job that needs to be done, which is like legislating, making legislations. So they're busy on, you know, fights between so-and-so and what's happening outside and, you know, with some clan thing and, and like doing everything else other than the, the real job. Mm. So that's also very distracting. You cannot do your job by yourself, but on the other side, and for me, that was the real job for me. Like the real job was to change how things work in this country mm. so that we can get better governance system that benefits everybody. The, you talked about hope a lot and governance. And I think there's still a disconnect because now the hope is what the Kiwala to say. You guys, Lamy Batala, you have all these nice buildings, beautiful restaurants, elite hotel, like all the diaspora are going back. And one thing that I always personally had a problem with, I didn't know where we started from, but I see where we have. And so it's like, it doesn't matter infrastructure and all of those things. If there isn't a value for it or there isn't an appreciation for 
a lot of what we we get really excited about where we're at we have roads we have buildings alhamdulillah look at where we have and it's like there's still a lot of need and we also still need to be able to progress but you can't even have conversations or you can't even say something like we still have ways to go without people getting personally insulted yes and making it personal yeah and this isn't a personal game um and a lot of what you focus on was civic education and awareness mm-hmm. um and so kind of taking it back to the people being of service to the people the role of non-government uh, non-governmental actors uh, whether it's civil society or like the, the, the grassroots community um which is sometimes lacking um and i know where it comes from it comes from poverty it comes uh, from mistrust it comes from like lack of resource and a lot of things but those are the ones who need to really um involve you know uh, encourage people to be more involved people to understand what they really want okay my constituents if they tell me like okay like sagal how many bills have you endorsed how many bills have like bill this bills like touch our livelihood what was your role in it people ask me like the budget that have been approved this year is that much and um and our problem is like for example we have a water problem or we have roads problem or we have a security problem what's the government doing about that mm-hmm. and also how are you helping as an mb and how are you pushing the government to make more revenue if that is how they hold me accountable then i will know where to go but if all day long it is like find a job for my child like keeps me from the real work that i was supposed to do mm. and it makes also very very few and limited people to benefit from the uh, uh space i was given and the power i was given to do the work so what happens is the whole understanding of how public officials should work is upside down mm-hmm. and people it, it the, you know uh, what people don't understand is corruption now it's the worst stage it became part of our livelihood mm-hmm. people don't even notice and it's everywhere it's yeah. everywhere it's every public uh 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 office and um, it's not only governmental it's even non-governmental civil society ngos like have you noticed both in in the south and, and north we don't have a civil society organizations and ngos that are consistent with their direction mm. and what they're doing it's project based Mm. and what's the donor offering the, the donor is offering this year to do that and next year they change the so they change like the weather mm. <laughs> it's like it's like gobaldeo mm-hmm. so that what it does is it kind of makes the whole community to not trust the process to not trust the officials to not trust anybody who tells them i'm doing something good for you and they tell you like no you're not mm-hmm. there is something in it for you i'm not going to help you until you give me something out of it and you mm-hmm. give 5% to this one and that one and that one and the whole thing becomes some conspiracy and it's no longer working for nobody 
So what we need is to teach the people, it's just, you need to be patient a little longer, like a little bit. Why are we always settling for something that's bare minimum? And then we say, this is Somalia, so this is the best you can get. Okay, thank God that you got this. Like, you don't complain. And that's what happens when you tell someone, they go like, have you seen the way it was before? And you feel mm. like, uh, yeah, that was bad. And now we can be better. We can do yes. Better. Well, I think that's the biggest thing is now we can be better. So let's be better. And that's something that's just lost. And they use Islam as a kappa. Well, alhamdulillah, at least we're from Bahaisana. Yeah, but it's kind of like you don't have to be greedy to want better things, but just like it's available and accessible. So why not? Besides, God gave us all this ability and smartness and opportunity and space and we can go big. Why are we settling for like the bare minimum? Why are we not doing the best we need to be pushed okay yes so i was gonna ask you the last question um kind of going off of that what is the hope or the that you have for the next generation for somalia in the next 20 30 years that you know shall you be able to see during your lifetime um well i i think um next generation it, i have a lot of hope um that uh, next generation are more, more like they're more involved than before, and they are now becoming more aggressive when it comes um, to holding their position and, and, and coming forward and trying to um, to challenge and push the envelope. Because um, we, Yes, our culture has a lot of beautiful things. Sometimes that becomes a weapon, that it's weaponized against youth to deny their rights and um, to, you know, uh, rob their voices. So now mostly say Wallahi generation, one of the things that they uh, brought back is like, why? Yes. Why do I have to do this? And uh, and now it's, it's it became very infectious. <laughs> so it's going around. So all youth that like now becoming no like you. So what? You are so and so, and you're like someone who people worship. But I don't care. Mm. Convince me. What are you doing? And 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 also, I if I have something different than what you're doing or what you think, then I will say it about the the different um the stages of, of like I, I went through mm. things there always there was a every now and then there was an alarm that was going off that like two percent waking you know people's minds two percent and changing something so i'm impatient i feel like no we need like 50 percent to wake up we mm. need something to change and this is the thing if you talk to the people they know what's wrong and they know what needs to be done yeah people will tell you justice system in somalia is crazy mm. or people go to uh, al shabaab area to get justice mm. why are you not saying something to to get justice why when the government talks about appointing uh, uh, uh you know some 
judges and, 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 and you know, head of courts and stuff, why are you campaigning for some loser from your class? Why don't you say, like, the government needs to, you know, fundamentally change the system? I'm not going to stop worrying. I'm not going to stop trying. But I don't have to act like, Without me, everything would fall apart. No, nothing will even, like, nobody even would notice me now if I take an exit. But when I was younger, that was my mentality. And I felt like there is, we are racing, you know, against the clock. So we have to make sure that everything is, is in place and we have to push it. We have to push it. And I cannot be without, uh, and that's another mentality that only Somali women have. Mm. Only Somali women, because I have many friends who are childhood friends, you know, different stages in my life who are now working in different sectors, who I know how much they sacrifice and how much they put on the line to do the work they do. And those women, like, nobody sees them and they never seek to be seen or appreciated or to be talked about, but the work they do every single day saves lives. I have, to be honest, I have some moments that I am so down and I feel like this is a hopeless case, especially when it's mostly uh, women related and how women get treated and it's another thing that really um, encourages me when I see how women are pushing. Like one of the, I'm kind of person who looks a glimpse of hope in situations, a little situation that people sometimes don't see. I went to one of the uh, small towns in Somalia. Well, comparing to Mogadishu, it's small, but it's not small. So we were doing, it was actually, it was 2015. So we were doing um, the election modality, um, like, social consultation, public consultation. So mm. we were kind of asking people, how do you want this to you know, work? And in this city, we uh, said, okay, we are going to talk today, sample of 100 people. So these 100 people came and the ladies and men, they were like two columns. I was kind of like addressing them and I talked to them. And then it was first, I was explaining what's been happening and what needs to be done because we were kind of looking, how do we make sure that women have their um, 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 like uh, representation in, in this process and how we make sure it's like just an equal process for all the uh, society, not only women, for people with, uh, you know, disabilities, with uh, uh, people from minority, uh, you know, communities and stuff. Then men started pushing back. And the women who were sitting there, like, they are quiet. And none of them, like, all of them, their faces are covered. So you don't even know what you're expecting from. And I was like, okay, I'm in trouble here. Mm. And then this lady raises her hand and she stands up and she goes like, listen, guys. Men were making this argument of like, we need women in the house. They are the, you know, the society, you know, uh, a backbone. So we don't need them in this dirty politics. They try sometimes to make the whole thing like bad thing, nonsense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then she gets up and she goes like, listen, 30 years, 
of civil war and destruction in this country, we've been taking care of the families, of the houses, of the children. We made the society survive. We held the society together. She said, if, as you said, politics, let's take your argument and say politics is somewhere that it's our time. And if somebody's staying home and taking care of shit, it's you. I was like, this is my hero. And she goes like, and don't ever tell me what to do. Kukala na krono, melwana fav.